0: The Ear to Asia podcast is made available on the Jakarta Post platform under agreement between the Jakarta Post and the University of Melbourne.
1: Hello, I'm Ali Moore. This is Ear to Asia
2: in Hong Kong comes in explicit and subtle ways as well. The education curriculum has been changed. The way that we look at the government has been changed. The way that we have been living with each other has been changed too. So it is a very divided society right now, not like what I've been grown up with.
0: So we're actually seeing a rapidly decreasing element of democratization within Hong Kong's political system, and I think that no matter how one reads the basic law and its sort of promises and aspirations and aims, this is really simply not what Hong Kong people thought was going to happen, and in that sense, it's uh, deeply unfair and, in my opinion, disrespectful to the people of the city.
1: In this episode, how has China's national security law changed Hong Kong? Ear to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialist at the University of Melbourne. Shortly after the death of Queen Elizabeth II, Thousands of people in Hong Kong turned out to pay their respects to the monarch who'd ruled over the city for 45 years, and it was one of the largest public gatherings since China clamped down on demonstrations of political dissent in the former British colony more than two years ago. For some, this wasn't only a matter of mourning their former queen, but a subtle form of protest at how China has tightened its grip on the once freewheeling and boisterous city. In the lead-up to the 1997 handover, China agreed to allow Hong Kong its own system of governance for 50 years under the One Country, Two Systems aegis, included in the agreement were universal suffrage and the continuation of the British legal system. But in 2020, after months of mass protests in the streets of Hong Kong during 2019, Beijing's patience ran out and it imposed the national security law on the territory – which resulted in activists and journalists being jailed for their role in the protests. So how has the national security law affected the city's ethos? Can Hong Kong keep its edge as Asia's leading financial centre, or is that already on the wane? What's happened to the city's arts and culture? And what does it mean to be a Hong Konger today, in a city where the freedoms many grew up with no longer exist? Joining me to examine the impact of the national security law on life in Hong Kong, a translation studies expert and Hong Kong native, Associate Professor Esther Leung from Asia Institute and longtime China watcher, Dr. Kevin Carrico from Monash University. Welcome back to Ear to Asia, Esther and Kevin. Nice to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Let's start with a big picture look at Hong Kong today, two years on from the introduction of the national security law and almost three years since those big protests of 2019. Esther, as someone who grew up in Hong Kong, what's Hong Kong like today? What's your sense of how it's changed? To me, it has been changed
2: a lot. As you have said, but I have lived in Hong Kong, born and bred over there and have most of my education there as well. The way that it is now, it is very different from what I have experienced and what I've gone through before. Can you give us a sense of where you see those changes? Changes comes in explicit and subtle ways as well. The education curriculum has been changed. The way that we look at the government has been changed. The way that we have been living with each other has been changed too. So it is a very divided society right now, not like what I've been growing up with. Your neighbour is pretty much your lifelong friend and, yeah, relatives, families looking out for each other. It has been changed in that way too. So that's the most, I think, devastating experience for me in a way that my friends are no longer there.
1: Most of them have migrated. Well, look at all those issues in more detail in a minute, but I'm particularly interested in your comments about neighbours. Neighbours were always people who would look out for you. Is it a less friendly place? I would think so, because after what had happened in the previous couple of years, we
2: have been divided by the different views that we have about what's been happening, the trust with each other are gone in a way, because that is why I think the Government is trying so hard to have all these propagandas going on even in the community, in the neighborhood itself, that change the way that people assess information, disseminate informations, and the way that they treat each other as well.
1: Kevin, you've described Hong Kong as a politically engaged and dynamic society. they're your words. Is it still
0: well. I believe that political dynamism and engagement still very much exist below the surface, but you know, my own experience, I first came to Hong Kong in uh, 2003 from China in the midst of the article 23 controversy, which was about uh, at that time, the passage of a national security law. And what I saw when I arrived in Hong Kong was, as I mentioned, A deeply politically engaged and dynamic city where people could hold a diversity of views, but still be able to talk about them reasonably, talk about them openly, and really, you know, even if one disagreed, respect the diversity of views and understand one another. But what we've seen since June of 2020 is really the just complete crushing and annihilation of that civil society, of that mutual trust and understanding, and the attempt to eclipse that with a society sort of very similar to what I saw in China at the time, right? Where there's really only one voice that can speak with authority, and uh, anyone who disagrees is immediately either silenced or um, sent away. And that's a, a very, very dark turn for a really great city,
1: So Kevin, if the catalyst for that in June 2020 was the national security law, we know that that law focuses on four specific areas: they criminalize any act of secession, subversion, terrorism, or collusion. Can you give us a draw us a picture of how different that law is? To what was the legal structures of Hong
0: Kong? Yes, uh, that's actually very easy to do, because in my opinion, you know, we talk about the National Security Law as if it's a law, right? Um, and there are sort of four areas, right: uh, secession, subversion, terrorism, and collusion, that are deemed illegal. Now. The problem is that these four terms are applied in such a broad, you know, just ridiculously broad manner, right, that essentially anything that the government dislikes can be placed under these four categories, right? So that's sort of the main problem uh, with the national security law insofar as Hong Kong Long had a uh, very dynamic and resilient rule of law system. One knew what was legal and what was illegal. If one abided by the law, one would not have any problems. If one violated the law, of course, as with any society, one would encounter punishment for that. But the national security law it's sort of like a uh, an anti-law, sort of a legal atomic bomb that's just kind of dropped on Hong Kong's legal system and essentially allows the government to persecute anyone whom they dislike under these four pretexts of secession, subversion, terrorism, and collusion. And the impact on Hong Kong's legal system has been disastrous of course, uh, with numerous people held on sort of pseudo-crimes facing, uh, you know, essentially potential life sentences.
1: And Kevin, I'll come back again to look at some of those impacts in more detail. But just in terms of context, Hong Kong, of course, was meant to remain, as we said in the introduction, under the one country, two systems principles for 50 years. Under the basic law, certain freedoms are protected So has China breached the basic law?
0: Oh, yes, 100%. I have no doubt in my mind that China has absolutely violated the basic law, violated so many of the promises that were made, not only to the people of Hong Kong, but also to the international community, particularly insofar as the initial agreement Between the United Kingdom and China, the Sino-British Joint Declaration was officially registered at the United Nations as a binding international treaty. And it's depressing to see those promises broken, while at the same time realizing that at the moment there is not much that one can do.
1: At the same time though, Kevin, isn't there In a sense, wasn't there a poison pill built into the text of the Basic Law, which would allow China to argue that it has not breached the Basic Law? Because if you look at which body holds the ultimate power of interpretation, it's Beijing.
0: Ah, yes, that is very true. And that's, I think, one of the fatal flaws of the Basic Law, which is that the final right of review and interpretation is placed in the hands of the National People's Congress. And there's a real contradiction there, insofar as the basic law was officially supposed to essentially control China's powers in Hong Kong, limit China's powers in Hong Kong, because we know that we're dealing with a very controlling, very interventionist government, right, that wants to sort of micromanage everything. And that was simply not how Hong Kong society worked. And that's not what made Hong Kong a successful place, right? So yeah, the the basic law was intended to place these controls on the central government and on its interventions in Hong Kong, but by including a clause that said that the National People's Congress of the essentially Chinese Communist Party had the right to final interpretation of the basic law, it's basically just sort of handing over the right of interpretation to the power that's supposed to be controlled and limited by that law. And we've seen the disastrous impact of that sort of failure of any type of oversight in Hong Kong today.
1: Esther, when you look at that one country, two systems and the promise of 50 years of maintaining that, do you think it was always inevitable that China would not wait until 2047? Well,
2: I have to confess that I was one of those who have been very optimistic when Hong Kong was first returned to China. I went back to Hong Kong in 1997, actually, thinking that we were hoping that might be a good change for Hong Kong. As history developed, we thought that it will be, we will be progressing, making a better future for Hong Kong at that time. I didn't think that that would be so sudden, that would be so quick that this policy has been changed. So I was thinking at that time that we still have 50 years to work on to be integrated or to be part of China in a way to help China to improve. At that point of time, But then, yeah, things changed and it came much quicker than we have expected and taking a completely different turn as well of what that one country in two systems means and what that 50 years period of time has been cut short as well. So that was a bit unexpected. So maybe I was too naive at the time when I decided to go back to Hong Kong
1: in 1997. You say that, but I remember the conversations around leading up to 1997 and even afterwards, it was not a conversation about who had the power of interpretation, was it? No, because we had the basic law and we
2: trusted that the basic law would work and would be upheld as the ultimate referendum for what is going to happen to Hong Kong. So that was why I think a lot of people were
1: hopeful and trust that it would work at that time. Do you think it could have been different if there was a different leader in Beijing? So far from inevitable, there could have been a different path? I wouldn't want to
2: speculate on that because to me, it's something that I've learned playing a leadership role in academic institutes like Melbourne University. That's something that I learned that you need to have the systems there rather than the people there. Once the systems is set up properly, It doesn't matter who is going to be in charge. The system will run efficiently. So that is my belief, I think, to a certain extent how a country would be like too.
1: And I guess talking about systems, Kevin, let's look at how Hong Kong has changed, specifically looking at governance, at the legislative arm of the government. The basic law it's pretty clear. It says the ultimate aim is the election of all the members of the Legislative Council by universal suffrage, and the ultimate aim is the selection of the chief executive by universal suffrage. I guess there's rather a big difference between an aim or an aspiration and a promise. Is that fair, Kevin?
0: Well, I suppose that's fair, although that distinction again, was was not made at the time, right? So I do think that, you know, we can sort of go back and say, well, you know, the basic law says this, so that if we interpret it in a particular way, then, you know, we could sort of see this coming. And I guess my my main sort of comment on that would be that in a sense, we should have seen what was going to happen in Hong Kong. Of course, previous examples of so-called autonomy, whether in uh, Tibet or Xinjiang, um, have all ended up uh, with uh, considerably greater repression, right? Than one sees even in non-autonomous regions. However, you know, nobody really saw this coming. And I would have thought that even if not abiding by the letter of the law, I would have thought that Beijing would at least continue to put on a bit of a performance, right? In terms of making progress toward promised uh, democratization. But, you know, if we look at the most recent pseudo election in Hong Kong, You know, basically, the entire pan democratic camp uh, was arrested. Arrested for what? Uh, Participating in primaries, which are, based on my understanding, a somewhat important component of any democratic system. Now, um, the amount of directly elected legislators in the legislative council decreased while the legislative council. Sort of the seats in the council expanded. So we're actually seeing a rapidly decreasing element of democratization within Hong Kong's political system. And I think that no matter how one reads the Basic Law and its sort of promises and aspirations and aims, this is really simply not what Hong Kong people thought was going to happen. And in that sense, you know, it's uh, deeply unfair and, in my opinion, disrespectful to the people of the city for Beijing to essentially have not only tricked people, but also really, you know, destroyed a city's political, legal, and by extension, economic and cultural systems.
1: And, Kevin, in, in a very practical sense, the right of people to seek office. It's fundamentally changed, hasn't it? And we saw this in those latest elections. It's a very limited field of people who can be voted for. And in fact, we ended up with, uh, from those last elections, we ended up with pro-Beijing candidates winning a landslide.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, I mean, that's, to be honest, that's the only way pro-Beijing candidates can win, um, is by arresting everybody who actually represents people's opinions. So that's uh, not a good way to attain victory, and it's not, in my opinion, a healthy or lasting formula for building a a stable society. I mean, we can also see this, of course, in the chief executive election, right, where um, John Lee was essentially handed the title of chief executive. In the past, as I mentioned, there was at least a performance of some type of election campaign. Even if people didn't have the opportunity to uh, directly vote, there was an attempt to sort of appeal to people. And um, John Lee didn't need to do anything like that. He's openly endorsed by Beijing. That's really, you know, who he serves, Beijing, as do all of pro-Beijing legislators in the Legislative Council. They don't serve the people of Hong Kong.
1: And Esther, it's something that for people who have not spent time in Hong Kong, it may be hard to, I guess, understand just how vibrant a political community Hong Kong was. I remember being there in the early 90s and It was a place where, uh, I suppose, people from all walks of life would stand for office. That is a fair description, isn't it? I would think so. I think that was exactly what the
2: Umbrella Movement was about before this law was implemented. These are the protests of 2012, 2014. That's right, yeah. The universal suffrage, that's what people have been asking for. People wanted to have vote and be voted to become one of these Legislative Council members who represent people from different walks of life, ordinary citizens as well. So a lot of activities, debate, and people with different kinds of backgrounds were engaged in those debates as well. That's not happening after what had happened in 2019. So that is a great loss, I think, to Hong Kong. It's not just to Hong Kong to a certain extent, to
1: the democratic systems in the world as well. Kevin, you talked about the arrests and I know that you were a columnist at the Apple Daily and one of those arrested was the owner of the Apple Daily, Jimmy Lai. Many other pro-democracy news outlets have been shut down. If we look at the media landscape for a minute post the national security law, how much has that landscape changed?
0: I think that it's very difficult to understate the degree of change in Hong Kong's media environment. As I mentioned, you know, I first came to Hong Kong from China in in 2003 and one of the aspects of the city that left the deepest impression upon me was really the vibrancy and excitement of the media environment there. You know, there's been pressures on this for the past you know, 25 years. Of course, there was the arrest of, well, I shouldn't say arrest, you know, the cross-border kidnapping, essentially, of uh, booksellers from the Causeway Bay bookstore. Who had sold books that caricatured Chinese leaders. Mm, Yeah. And that was 2015, right? And that had sort of a chilling impact to a degree, on the once vibrant, uh, how shall I say it, banned books business in Hong Kong, Hong Kong as an autonomous region was able to still print and distribute books that were, you know, very arbitrarily banned in China's obsessive and all-controlling censorship system so that 7 years ago of course had an impact on the book industry in the city but the newspaper industry remained vibrant and alive even as pressures escalated you know there have been various attempts throughout the years to to cancel apple daily to apply pressures on advertisers to have Former chief executives like Liang Chen Ying promote boycotts of the paper. But it was impossible to do because even though Apple Daily may not have been sort of the voice of everyone in Hong Kong, I do think that the overwhelming majority of people in Hong Kong appreciated the diversity of viewpoints that Apple Daily. Provided, And so it was really only with the national security law, its destruction of this legal system, that the Hong Kong and, by extension, Chinese governments were eventually able to finally act and uh, kill uh, this um, significant media empire.
1: Kevin, you talk about diversity of opinion, but those who never read Apple Daily... Describe it and why it was particularly targeted.
0: I would say that Apple Daily was an openly pro-democracy paper. It did not shy away from controversy. It did not shy away from, you know, holding those in power to account. And this included not only leaders in the Hong Kong government, but also leaders in the Chinese government, whom, to put it lightly, were no friends of the paper, right? So when I first came to Hong Kong, I, I bought you know a, a copy of Apple Daily in, in 2003, and you know I was just fascinated by the ability to speak so openly, so critically about the situation in both Hong Kong and China. And I think that's, how shall I say it, something that's often taken for granted in free societies. It's something that Hong Kong did not take for granted, but that it has now very unfortunately lost in the essentially transformation of a once dynamic media environment into really just a space where one particular voice is able to express what truth is.
1: And against that backdrop, Esther, what about the impact of the national security law on broadcast TV more specifically, and indeed, on social media? Uh, You talked earlier about the society being more divided. Is that reflected particularly on social media? Exactly, yeah. I think
2: some of the things that I would like to add to what Kevin just said as well, actually, this kind of distrust of what the media is doing happened long before Apple Daily was closed down. So we have seen newspapers selling figures have been dwindling over the years anyway. So, and it's exactly because this is mistrust of what's been going on, what's been narrated in all these newspapers, articles that has been there before. And that was why people turned to social media platforms the other kind of news media platforms for information, I think that's the kind of critical attitudes that Hong Kong people have grown over the years. After there are all these kind of scandals or what's happening with this newspaper taking different political stands and publishing articles selectively, not necessarily truthfully either. So that's I think that's a change of people's attitudes towards newspaper anyway. So. The social media platform, TV news platform, people either take stand on which social media platform they would be engaged with, or they would completely just turn off all these TV news broadcasting stations altogether because they know that they're speaking only one voice and which voice that they're using. So the good way to look at it is we have a lot of these different kind of social media platforms. Blossoming and we've seen news media platform that has been closed down as well. So I think people these say they are divided of their views of what kind of media platform that they're looking for the news information and how do they process information, how do they engage with this social platform as well. And that is why I think society has become much more divided. And in terms of seeking for truth and information, those kind of things, we become much more self-reliant in a way that we have to look at all this information from the different kind of channels and platforms that we could lay our hands on. So that's how also accelerate the division of the community in a way, because we are affected in many ways by this information that we're looking at.
1: And Esther, if you if you look past media and we go to a broader cultural picture, things like movies, music, books, I know that change started well before the national security law, but how significant have the changes with those things been in Hong Kong? Well, from my own experience or from
2: people that I've known, I've noticed that, for example, even for actor actresses who have been playing whatever or earning a lot of money from this films industry in China. People who would just boycott watching those films made by those actresses who are involved in those films industry in China, produced in China. So to that extent, I think that is an interesting phenomenon, of course, for a cultural analyst like us, because we would want to see how people's behavior has been changed as well. That's another kind of consumerism. I think that's happening there. I think that's significant, that's worth actually investigating too. Language-wise, people have put up a much more stronger resistance to use Mandarin, Putonghua in Hong Kong as well. So that kind of resistance and that kind of boycotting behaviour of people who are involved in this so-called Chinese-oriented or Chinese producers, how in the long run that will affect this industry, the media industry in Hong Kong as well. So I think that's something that we might want to watch out for.
1: You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. And just a reminder to listeners about Asia Institute's online publication on Asia and its societies, politics and cultures. It's called the Melbourne Asia Review. It's free to read and it's open access at melbourneasiareview.edu.au. You'll find articles by some of our regular Ear to Asia guests and by many others. Plus, you can catch recent episodes of Ear to Asia at the Melbourne Asia Review website, which again, you can find at melbourneasiareview.edu.au. I'm Ali Moore, and I'm joined by Hong Kong watchers Dr. Kevin Carrico and Associate Professor Esther Leung. We're discussing life in Hong Kong after China's introduction of its national security law. Esther, you say there's been resistance to Putonghua or Mandarin in Hong Kong, but to what extent has resistance been futile? Because certainly Putonghua is, is much more common in Hong Kong now than it used to be.
2: It is, yeah. Um, because in, in the education system, in the curriculum, there has been changed too. Putonghua is now a compulsory subject. And with more and more people coming from China who speak Mandarin to Hong Kong, They changed this linguistic landscape too in Hong Kong. So a lot more people, especially the New Territories, which is closer to the borders, schools in those areas have noticed a lot more of the students using Mandarin as the first language rather than Cantonese.
1: And the changes in the education system, Esther, they go past language, don't they? They do, certainly, yes. Can you describe them? Um. The education system is not
2: just the language, but also what we used to have a subject we call critical studies. I think now general educations has now been changed into patriotic educations. The purpose of that change, I think, is very obvious,
1: right? Kevin, how do you see changes to the education system? Because, of course, that is going to be the next generation of Hong Kong people.
0: Yes, I, I think this change really needs to be read Within the context of Beijing's control over Hong Kong, insofar as in the aftermath of the Beijing massacre in 1989, where months of protests were put down in a very, very violent, horrid fashion, Beijing soon thereafter implemented throughout China patriotic education. And this sort of patriotic education redirected people's anger away from the government that had just, you know, basically slaughtered people in the streets of their own capital to various foreigners and foreign powers who were portrayed as oppressing China during the century of humiliation. So the narrative shift there was away from the reality of a government that was uh, oppressing people to the idea that foreigners were oppressing China and the government that had just gunned people down in the streets was essentially rescuing them right from those bad, mean foreigners. Now, patriotic education has been very, very effective in China in transforming public opinion People, uh, as a result of this patriotic education, do by and large accept the government's narrative despite its extremely problematic foundations. And so I think that that experience, right, of transforming a society through essentially brainwashing education in China is now being, you know, transferred into. Hong Kong. Now, I think that it will be a bit more complicated in Hong Kong. Hong Kong has a long-standing tradition of liberal education of critical thinking. I at one point would have loved to uh, have taught, you know, at a university in Hong Kong. I certainly would not want to be an instructor of a uh, patriotic education or national security class. At a university in Hong Kong today. I don't think it's going to be an easy or smooth process, but I do suppose that the people planning this out do hope that, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, people will be sufficiently numbed and dumbed down by this patriotic national security content uh, that they'll simply accept whatever the government says. I consider that unlikely, but that seems to be what they're trying.
1: We've talked a bit about the cultural, the education impact of that law. What about business? Of course, Hong Kong has uh, had a long reputation as a global hub for finance and commerce, and that indeed depends on a a strong rule of law and strong institutions. Kevin, is that status as a global hub already on the wane, do you think?
0: Yes, I would say that. I think that one of the real advantages that Hong Kong had relative to China and relative to many other countries in the region was a very reliable and resilient rule of law system, which is extremely important for people doing business. If one has agreements, contracts where people need to really abide by the letter of the law of the contract, Hong Kong is, uh, or Hong Kong was, an ideal place to set up headquarters and be confident that everything would proceed as planned. Now, two major things have changed that, of course. The first is the national security law. We can see that You know, basically, if we look at the example of just Apple Daily, right, what happened to Jimmy Lai and to Apple Daily can happen to anyone, right? If the government in Hong Kong wants to shut down your business now, they totally can. And there's no legal protections. That is obviously disconcerting to global business. Another issue, of course, is the uh, slightly ridiculous COVID controls that the Hong Kong government has put in place. No one wants to travel to a so-called global financial hub where they need to quarantine uh, for something like 21 days. Of course, uh, the Hong Kong government is now changing their quarantine rules, uh, relaxing them Considerably, although not um, completely, but the uncertainty and instability and anxiety created by the national security law, which is, as I emphasized, just sort of the end of all law, remains uh, very much in place and makes Hong Kong a very unfriendly place for businesses that rely on certainty and stability.
1: At the same time, though, Kevin, if you're trying to actually assess the impact of the national security law on business, how hard is that to do given COVID? Can you separate the impact of the law and the impact of COVID? I know thousands of people from all different backgrounds have left Hong Kong in recent years, but how much do we actually know about what's driving those
0: departures? I agree. It's certainly hard to say with 100% certainty, but. I would say that as the Hong Kong government relaxes its quarantine requirements, we will be able to see if global businesses suddenly go rushing back to Hong Kong. I'm not a gambler, but I would say that I wouldn't place my bets on a global business scrambling back to a city where companies are shut down at the government's whim and the entire political opposition uh, sits in prison awaiting uh, sentencing.
1: Is there evidence, though, Kevin, that, that businesses have shut down? Like, can you name businesses that were there because it was a global hub and they are no longer there?
0: Well, I can say that I do know that uh, a number of US companies, which uh, once played a really sort of dominant role, as having regional headquarters in Hong Kong are departing the city in many cases for Singapore
2: maybe i can add a bit of my observations to that point because if we look at this census the statistics by the Hong Kong government that we have seen from the end of 2021 the population has Gone down from 7.4 million to 7.29 million. And then the population's growth is a negative of 1.6. The implication for that, the worrying factors of that, I think, is with these changes of the populations, we have seen a lot of people who left Hong Kong who are between the 30 and the 50 years old, mid to high level management in their career. So these people who have left. And some of them have left their parents behind. So the population in Hong Kong has been said to be aging anyway. So with this departure of this group of people, with the aging populations, so we can see not that far in the future, that will become an issue. Who will be there to look after these aged populations? If not the younger generations, would the government be able to take over, to take care of these old generations. So I think that would have a significant impact on how business would be run and whether business could be run and who will be running it in Hong Kong too. So this exodus of special talents in a way, I think would make an impact on how business development would be like in Hong Kong in the mid and long term in the future.
1: Esther, the people that you know who have left and from your observations, what's the primary motivation for leaving? Most of these people who have left are families with
2: young children. I think they are worried about education of the children. And that is why I think they have left. And some of them have left because of different political stands, of course. And they would be worrying that taking a different stand would that
1: means putting a cap to the career
2: development in a way. So, and that is why they have left.
1: And when you say concerns around education of their children, is it around the style of education that they would not be getting in Hong Kong? I think so.
2: With the change of curriculum and everything, the divided community I'm talking about, that's even happening within family too. I mean, the young generation is going to brought up with this patriotic education in a way they would be thinking in in completely different ways in the long run. I mean, they are young kids being taught in such a way or given all those information. They have to pass the examinations, right? So they would be studying all those informations that I'm sure would change the way of thinking. So that is why these young families, they're worrying that their children would be very different from them in terms of their value system, in terms of their views of the world. So that is why they are leaving. And is it a
1: permanent move? Do
2: they think of it as being permanent? Well, I can't say for everybody. I've seen people who have made the choice to stay in Hong Kong too, to mind the fort, in a way, in their words. But there are people who are living and saying that, okay, at least they have ensured that their kids would enjoy their education system to a certain extent until certain age, and they would be there overseas. They would not be going back to Hong Kong. What does Mind the Fort mean
1: for a Hongkonger?
2: There are people who are still dedicated, committed to their professions. I've got lawyers, medical professionals, friends who are still there. They are fully aware of there are people who cannot afford to leave Hong Kong. So they would be there to take care of those people. So I really have great admiration of those people who are doing that right now in Hong Kong.
1: Kevin, we've crossed a lot of territory in terms of impact of the national security law. But one thing I did want to look at more specifically was the legal system, which you've already referred to. I thought it was of note that earlier this year, the United Kingdom announced that two of its Supreme Court judges would no longer sit on Hong Kong's top court because of what was described as a threat to civil liberties How much has Hong Kong's British common law system changed under China?
0: I, uh, again, I feel like it's difficult to understate the extent of changes. Really, what long distinguished Hong Kong from China was a um, reliable, resilient, and clear legal system where... You know, what was legal was legal, and what was illegal was illegal. People who acted in a legal way would have no problems, and people who acted in violation of the law would be given a fair and open trial, right? And we've seen that recipe for success just completely wiped out in recent years. People like the various pro-democracy candidates who were arrested for participating in an election primary, were not doing anything illegal, were not violating any type of law, right, and were behaving in a way that has long been, you know, completely acceptable in Hong Kong. And yet, they have now been arrested. A considerable amount of them are pleading guilty. I believe 28 or 29 out of 47. And one question that people are left to ponder is, why are these people pleading guilty? I can say with a high degree of certainty that they are not pleading guilty because they think they've done anything wrong. They didn't do anything wrong. They participated in an election primary they are pleading guilty because they realize that in hong kong today there is no hope of a fair and open trial that actually weighs the evidence and rules in a reasonable way hong kong's legal system has been transformed to very much resembles china's legal system where anyone who the government dislikes faces persecution which is then dressed up essentially as prosecution within a sort of charade of a legal system. And that's a massive and depressing change for the city.
1: And we could continue this conversation for a very long time, but we do need to draw it to a close. Kevin, you said no hope there in terms of a fair trial under the legal system, but what about hope more generally Do you have faith that that enormous dynamism and that political engagement that was there and may still be there below the surface will survive and one day prosper again?
0: Yes, yes. I think that if we compare dictatorships and democratic societies, dictatorships simply don't last forever. There's a combination of Bad advice to leaders surrounded by yes men and public resentment that eventually builds up and leads to the end of unaccountable, unresponsive dictatorships. So I think for people trying to implement an unresponsive, unaccountable political system in Hong Kong, a city that has long been open dynamic, and diverse. I think that while they might be able to succeed in the short term, the track record of democratic societies versus dictatorships really shows that this won't last for long. And I think we all look forward to seeing the return eventually of a more liberal, open, and thoughtful model of the type that the Hong Kong people deserve.
1: Esther, do you share that optimism?
2: Uh, To a certain extent, but not entirely. (laughs) Not that optimistic as Kevin, because with what's happening, not just in Hong Kong, in different parts of the world as well, I think. Yes, we may have some days getting back to normal, but with what's happening around the world these days, I'm not that optimistic. If we do, it will take a long time, I would think.
1: And you, as we said at the outset, the question that was posed was what's been lost in Hong Kong? And there has been an enormous amount written about Hong Kong identity and a sense of loss that many Hong Kongers feel. Is that you, Esther? I would think
2: so. Yes. In the past, we don't even have the term Hong Konger, right? So we usually just call ourselves people from Hong Kong or I'm from Hong Kong. We didn't have the term Hong Konger as such in a way. So, in Chinese, of course, this is the same Hong Kong Yan, right? But when we translate Hong Kong Yan into this English terms, so which one are we using? Hong Kong people, Hong Konger, people from Hong Kong, and what does that signify as well? So, I'm constantly asking myself, what does that imply? And what does that signify if I'm saying that I am a Hong Konger or if I am people
1: from Hong Kong? What does it imply? What difference does it make to you? Being Hong Konger, I think it adds to
2: the label of Hong Kong people, right? You have you have add a different layer of symbolism of what you are and who you are in a way. But if you're just saying that I'm people from Hong Kong, you, you might be taking a stand that I'm originally from that place, that region. So I'm from that place, I'm from that geographical position. So the kind of emotional value you attach to it is slightly different, I would
1: think. Which term do you prefer? Uh, It depends on the context, (laughs) I have to say. Identity is very difficult for Hong Kongers or people from Hong Kong at the moment, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it is difficult,
2: especially being an academic who's overseas at the moment.
1: Well, I really do appreciate both of you being so generous with your time and with your insights for what is a very complex and challenging conversation and, of course, no more challenging than for the people of Hong Kong or Hong Kongers. Esther Leung and Kevin Carrico, thank you so much for talking to Ear to Asia. Thank you. Thank you. Our guests have been Associate Professor Esther Leung from Asia Institute and Dr Kevin Carrico from Monash University. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute of the University of Melbourne, Australia. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify or Google Podcasts. If you like the show, please rate and review it. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And please help us by spreading the word on social media. This episode was recorded on the fourth. 4th of October 2022. Producers were Calvin Parham and Eric Van Bemmel of Profactual.com. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2023, the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore. Thanks for your company.